Chapter 19 Samuel Walker of Truro An intelligent Christian does not need to be reminded that the Church of Christ has always recognized two classes of prophetic writers in the Old Testament. There are four who are called the major prophets, and twelve who are called the minor prophets. All of them wrote by direct and equal inspiration of God. All spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21. Yet we do not hesitate to assign a higher importance to one class than to the other. A well-informed man knows well that in the solar system some planets exceed others in size and glory. All are bright, beautiful, and perfect. All proclaim to the student of the heavens that the hand that made them was divine. Yet the glory of such bodies as Jupiter and Saturn is far greater than that of Mars, Venus, or the Moon. Thoughts such as these come across my mind as I turn from the seven leading champions of the revival of English religion in the eighteenth century to some of their lesser contemporaries. There were many eminent ministers in England who were entirely of one mind with Whitefield and his fellow workers, yet never attained to their greatness. They sympathized with the great leaders in all matters of doctrine. They generally cooperated with them and rejoiced in their success. They cheerfully bore their share of the reproach cast on Methodism or Evangelical Christianity. They did not retreat from any sacrifices, and they spared no effort in setting forward Christ's gospel. However, they did not possess the extraordinary public gifts of their seven brethren, and did not therefore leave as deep a mark on their generation. Like Silas and Timothy in Paul's days, they did good work in their own positions, but their work did not attract as much public attention as that of the mighty Masters of Assemblies, Ecclesiastes 12.11, whom I have described in preceding chapters. We must be cautious, though, that we do not undervalue men simply because they do not occupy prominent positions in the Church of Christ. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are various and many and He divides them to every man individually as He thinks is best. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-11 One minister is called to preach to thousands and to shake the world like a son of thunder, Mark three seventeen, while another is called to write hymns or compose books in an obscure corner of the earth. One man has gifts of voice, delivery, action, fluency, memory, and inspiration that equip him to stand up before multitudes, like Paul on Mars Hill, Luther at Worms, or Whitefield in Moorfields, and to win over those before him. Another man is shy, mild, and reserved, and can only make his mind work in solitude, quiet, and silence. Yet each may be an instrument of mighty influence in God's hand. The last day, indeed, may prove that the work of him whose voice was never heard in the street, Isaiah 42.2, and who dwelt among his own people, 2 Kings 4.13, produced a more permanent effect on souls than the most brilliant open-air sermons. I fear that we are all inclined to exaggerate the value of public gifts and to undervalue gifts that make no show before the world. Yet a time may come when the last will be found first and the first last. Matthew 20.16 Remembering these things, I want to give some account of four men of the eighteenth century who are far less known than some of their contemporaries, 
yet were eminently useful in their day and generation. The first whom I will introduce to you is Samuel Walker, the minister of Truro in Cornwall. Samuel Walker was born at Exeter in 1714 and died in 1761 at the early age of 47. Partly because his ministerial life was entirely spent in one of the most remote corners of England before railways were invented, and partly from his habits of mind that made him entirely decline all public work of a contentious kind and any outside his parish, he is a man whose name is hardly known to many Christians. However, in his day he was one who was most highly esteemed by such men as Wesley, Whitefield, Romaine, and Venn for his outstanding spirituality and soundness of judgment. Above all, he was one who cultivated his own corner of the Lord's vineyard with such remarkable success that there were few places in England where such impressive results could be shown from preaching the gospel as at Truro. The facts of Walker's life, of which any record remains, are few and brief. His family resided at Exeter and was well connected. He was directly descended from the good Bishop Hall, who was for time Bishop of Exeter, and whose granddaughter married a Walker. His grandfather, Sir Thomas Walker, was a member of Parliament for Exeter. John Walker, rector of St. Mary in Exeter, who wrote a well-known volume about the sufferings of the clergy who were removed from office under the Commonwealth, was also a relative of Samuel Walker. In fact, the first edition of the work was published in the very year that Samuel Walker was born. We know little of Walker's boyhood and youth beyond the fact that he was educated at Exeter Grammar School and was there for ten years, from the age of eight until he was eighteen. He then went to Exeter College, Oxford, in 1732, and earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from that university. He seems to have made good use of his time while he was at college, acquiring much knowledge that he found valuable later in life. His biographer specifically mentions, He cultivated logic with much success, and always considered his early devotion to that science as the foundation of the skill he afterward attained in a clear and methodical arrangement of his ideas. When complimented by his friends, who admired the clear and reasoned manner in which he dealt with every subject, he always observed that logic had been his favorite pursuit in youth, and that he recommended it to young clergymen. In addition to being a reading man, he seems to have been thoroughly upright and moral in life. Although completely lacking any spiritual light or religion, he was mercifully preserved from the excesses into which many young men fall at college to their own subsequent bitter sorrow. We know nothing more of Walker's university life. We have no account of his companions, friends, or acquaintances. It's a curious fact, however, that it's clear from a comparison of dates that he must have been an undergraduate of Exeter College at the very time when the Methodist movement began, and when Wesley, Whitefield, and Hervey were beginning their course of action as aggressive evangelists at Oxford. It's another curious fact that Lincoln College, of which John Wesley was a resident fellow, stands within fifty yards of Exeter College. Romaine also was at Christ Church at the same time, but there's not the slightest proof that Walker was acquainted with any of these good men. Walker entered the ministry at the age of twenty-three in the year 1737. He was first minister of Dodscombe Lee near Exeter, but only remained there one year. He then travelled around parts of Europe for two years as a private tutor to the younger brother of Lord Rolle. At the end of this responsibility, 
he became first minister and immediately after became vicar of Lanlivery near Lostwithiel in Cornwall. He resigned from this position in the year 1746, and he then accepted the office of Minister of Truro in Cornwall, and occupied that position for fifteen years until his death in 1761. It is beyond all doubt that Walker was profoundly ignorant of biblical religion at the time of his ordination. Like hundreds of clergymen, he undertook an office for which he was certainly not inwardly moved by the Holy Spirit, but he became a teacher of others while he himself knew nothing of the truth as it is in Jesus. In a letter dated 1756, he wrote, I spent the week before my ordination with the other candidates, who were as unrestrained, I fear, as myself, in a very light and improper manner, eating, drinking, and laughing together, when God knows we should all have been on our knees and should have been warning each other to fear for our souls in the view of what we were about to put our hands to. I cannot but attribute the many careless, ungodly years I spent in pleasure after that time to this irreverent introduction. And believe me, the review shocks me. While I write, I tremble in the recollection of the wounds I then gave Jesus. Walker spent the first two years of his ministerial life in this painful and unsatisfactory state of mind. Throughout that time he was diligent and conscientious in the discharge of the outward duties of his office. He preached, visited, catechized, reproved, exhorted, and rebuked, but did no good at all. Ignorant of both his own heart's disease and the glorious remedy provided by Christ's gospel, he labored entirely in vain. In fact, he later said himself that although he was well thought of and esteemed beyond most of his brethren for consistency, decency, trying to keep up external attendance, and even for his public addresses, yet he felt he would go sorrowing to the grave upon reviewing the years so misspent. The circumstances under which a complete change came over Samuel Walker's heart, character, and ministerial life were very remarkable. They provide a most instructive illustration of God's plan of leading people to Christ by ways that they do not know. Walker had come to Truro in 1746 with particular delight because of the popular entertainment and festivities of the place, in which the young minister at that time took great delight. He entered the place as a dancing, card-playing, party-going clergyman, and was known only in that character for the first twelve months of his ministry. It is said that at this period his only ambition was to be sought out for his fun and admired for his eloquence, and to become the reformer of the vicious by the power of persuasion and example. He was not completely ignorant, for, like every well-read man, he had historic knowledge of the leading doctrines of the Christian religion. But to use his own words, what he knew in his head he neither felt nor sought in practical experience. He acknowledges that, even in the midst of all his official decorum, he was motivated by two hidden principles that were as contrary to God as darkness is to light, a desire of reputation and a love of pleasure. Such were the beginnings of Walker's ministry. Such was the unpromising material that God was pleased to take in His hand and mold and form into a godly vessel of grace. The manner of Walker's conversion is described in the following way by one of his biographers. He had been at least a year in his position at Truro 
before he fell under any suspicion or uneasiness about himself or his preaching. The first impression that he was in error arose from a conversation between himself and a few of his parishioners on the subject of justifying and saving faith, to which he was wisely led by a pious individual. This person was Mr. Conon, master of the grammar school at Truro, whom Venn often said was the first person he had ever met who truly possessed the mind of Christ, and by whose aid he became aware that all was wrong within and without. Mr. Conan was one of those rare servants of God who, like Job, are found in places where you would think no good thing could grow, and who served to show that grace and not place makes the Christian. Fellowship between this good man and the minister of Truro gradually ripened into close friendship, and the result was the total conversion of the minister through the pious instrumentality of one of his hearers. The change that had come over the minister of Truro was soon apparent, both in his preaching and practice. It could not be hidden. He stopped taking part in the frivolous worldly amusements and entertainment that at one time captured his attention. He plainly acknowledged that he did not take up this new line of action without a mighty inward struggle, and that it was long before he could bring himself to any reasonable degree of indifference about the esteem of the world, and then only with heartfelt pangs of fear and unrest. He fought hard, though, and by God's grace was more than conqueror. At the same time, says his biographer, he began to preach as he felt. He declared the change in his views, and he faithfully pointed out the evil of the empty pleasures in which the inhabitants of his parish were absorbed, as well as the danger of resting on the mere formalities of church attendance for salvation. Repentance, faith, and the new birth became the topics of his sermons, truths which, though treated with all the power of his highly cultivated mind, brought down on him hatred as a fanatic, ridicule as a maniac, and fierce opposition as the destroyer of harmless joys. An unbeliever even went so far as to insult him in the pulpit, an offence that he bore with remarkable patience and dignity. The effects of Walker's new style of preaching seem to have been very deep and extraordinary. Astonishment and surprise were the first prevailing feelings in the minds of all. To hear their minister denouncing the very practices in which he himself had lately taken part, and pressing home the very doctrines that he had neglected or despised, was enough to make men's hair stand on end. Anger and irritation were naturally excited in the hearts of hundreds who loved pleasure more than God and who were determined to cling to the world. All of his hearers, though, seem to have been thoroughly stirred up and impressed. His biographer says, The earnestness of the preacher, along with the remarkable change of his habits, as well as of his sermons, stirred up the curiosity of the people. While they were enraged at the piety, they were drawn by the eloquence, and trembled at the sternness of their reprover. Even out of the pulpit they feared the presence of their minister. The Sabbath-breakers would leave at his approach, saying, Let's go, here comes Walker. His manner is said to have been commanding and solemn in the extreme, and his life so truly consistent that in time he awed into silence those who were at first most loud against him. At last such crowds attended his ministry that the streets of the town seemed to be deserted during the hours of service, so that it was said you could fire a cannon down every street of Truro during church time without a chance of killing a single human being. No well-informed Christian will be surprised to hear 
that a man preaching and living as Walker did was attacked by every kind of persecution. The great enemy of souls will never allow his kingdom to be pulled down without a struggle to preserve it. If he cannot prevent a faithful minister working, he will labor in every way to hinder and impede his work. The worldly portion of the Truro people resolved to get rid of a man who pricked their consciences and made them uncomfortable. They first tried to harm the minister of Truro with the bishop of the diocese, but happily they failed in this attempt. They then tried to prevail on the rector of Truro to dismiss him from his position, a move that led to the following remarkable result. His biographer says, Mr. Walker's enemies, being some of the wealthiest inhabitants of Truro, found the rector only too willing to listen to their complaints, and he promised that he would go to his assistant and give him notice to quit his position. He went, but like the Gaul who was sent to the Roman hero to get rid of him in prison, he left startled and rattled at Walker's noble tone and excellent demeanor. Upon entering Walker's home, he was received with an elegance and dignity of manner that were natural to one who had long been the charm of society, and he became so embarrassed that he was completely unable to attend to his errand. He at length made some remark that provided an opportunity of speaking of the ministerial office and character which Walker immediately embraced, and then he expanded on the subject with such forcefulness of reasoning and solemnity of appeal to his rector as a fellow laborer in the gospel that he retreated overwhelmed with confusion, unable to say a word about the intended dismissal. In consequence, the rector was rebuked for not fulfilling his promise, and went a second time to accomplish his task. He again retreated without daring to allude to the purpose of his visit. He was pressured to go a third time by one of his leading parishioners, but he replied, You go and dismiss him if you can. I cannot. I feel in his presence as if he were a being of superior nature, and I am so unnerved that I am uneasy until I can leave. A short time after this, the rector was taken ill. When he sent for Mr. Walker, he asked for his prayers, acknowledged the dignity of his conduct, and promised him his full support if he recovered from his sickness. From this time to the end of his ministry, no weapon formed against the curate of Truro seemed to prosper. He continued firmly on his path without hindrance, though not, of course, without much hatred, opposition, and petty persecution. Nothing that his opponents could do or devise, though, was able to stop or silence him. Very true is that word of Scripture, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 16, 7. There can be no doubt that Walker's position at Truro was greatly strengthened by his outstanding holiness, self-denial, and consistency of life. Whatever his enemies thought of his preaching, they could not deny that he was a remarkably holy man. Like Daniel, they could find no fault in him except concerning the law of his God. Daniel 6, 4-5. Two remarkable instances of his self-denial and unselfishness deserve special mention. One is his voluntary resignation of being named Vicar of Talland, to which he had been appointed about the time of his coming to Truro with the bishop's license of non-residence. On becoming a converted man, his conscience told him that he should not receive an income for which he discharged no ministerial duty. Acting on this principle, he cheerfully gave up the advancement unasked and unpersuaded, relinquished all his customary comforts, and went into humble lodgings of the plainest kind. The other instance is even more remarkable. 
He refused the opportunity of marrying a lady extremely suited to be his wife, who would have readily accepted his hand, for the sole reason that she had too much fortune. To a friend who seriously advised him to propose to her, he made the following remarkable reply. I certainly never saw a woman whom I thought comparable to Miss Hm, and I believe I should enjoy as much happiness in union with her as it is possible to enjoy in this world. I have reason also to think that she would not reject my courtship. Still, it must never be. What would the world say of me? Would not they imagine that the hope of obtaining such a prize influenced my profession of Christianity? It's easy, they would say, to preach self-denial and heavenly-mindedness, but has not the preacher taken care to get as much of this world's good as he could possibly obtain? It must never be. I can never allow any temporal happiness or advantage to be a hindrance to my usefulness. Conscientiousness like this is certainly very rare, and may seem totally incomprehensible and absurd to many people. Whether also in Walker's behavior to the lady there was not something of unnatural feelings of guilt, and whether a happy marriage might not have lengthened his life and usefulness, are questions that allow for some doubt. There's no denying that not a few evangelical ministers have withered their own usefulness by marrying wealthy wives. One thing is very certain. Walker's character for eminent unselfishness and unworldliness became so thoroughly established that in this important point the breath of slander never touched him to the very end of his days. The direct visible effects of Walker's ministry at Truro were very remarkable and extensive. Worldliness and wickedness were reduced to an extraordinary extent, and even those who loved sin were ashamed to commit it as openly as they had done in time past. Not long after he began to preach the real gospel and to call people to repentance, the theatre and cockfighting pit in the town were both forsaken and given up to other purposes. Similar reforms extended to places in the neighborhood through his instrumentality. The influence of his ministry, in fact, was especially felt by many who were never converted. He himself said that he had reason to think that almost all his hearers at Truro were, at one time or other, awakened, more or less, although I fear many of them have rejected the counsel of God against themselves. A wise man will always speak cautiously about positive spiritual results in the saving of souls by anyone's ministry. We see through a glass darkly. 1 Corinthians 13.12, and are easily deceived in such matters. Yet I see every reason to believe that Walker's ministry at Truro was really the means of turning hundreds from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God. It is a certain fact that in 1754, after he had preached the gospel only seven years at Truro, he recorded that no less than 800 people during that time had come to him to ask what they must do to be saved. Making every allowance for many of this number who undoubtedly drew back after their first convictions and returned to their sins, this simple fact should fill our minds with astonishment. The parish of Truro, even at this day, does not contain more than ten thousand people. A hundred years ago it must have been a much smaller place. The ministry that could engage the attention of eight hundred people in such a parish in seven years must have been one of remarkable power and specially blessed of God.
One of the most interesting examples of his ministerial success was the extraordinary effect that he produced on a regiment of soldiers who were quartered in Truro in 1756. As soon as they arrived, Walker set up a sermon for their special benefit on Sunday afternoon, which was called the Soldier's Sermon. After a little while, the number of attendants became very large. The mere fact that it was a voluntary service, specifically intended for soldiers, no doubt helped greatly to bring hearers. These sermons thoroughly captivated the attention of the men, and within three weeks at least a hundred of them came to Walker's house to ask what they must do to be saved. Walker himself says to a correspondent, The effects of the soldier's sermon have been very striking. You would have seen their countenances changing, tears often bursting from their eyes, and confessions of their exceeding sinfulness and danger breaking from their mouths. I have hardly heard such a thing as making excuses from any of them, while the desire to be instructed and uncommon thankfulness for any efforts for them used by any of us have been very remarkable. His biographer says, Mr. Walker's exertions in the regiment met with great opposition at first. The commander publicly forbade his men to go to him for private instruction, although at least two hundred and fifty of them ended up seeking the persevering servant of Christ for that purpose. Also, those whom Christianity had separated from the sinful habits and company of their unawakened comrades were much ridiculed, but grace enabled them to stand. A great change, however, soon took place. Punishment diminished, and order prevailed in the regiment to a degree never before witnessed. In time, the commander discovered the excellent cause of this beneficial change. Genuine zeal now had its full triumph and rich reward. The officers waited on Mr. Walker as a whole to acknowledge the good effects of his wise and diligent efforts, and to thank him for the reformation he had produced in their ranks. These interesting men left Truro after nine weeks. The parting scene was indescribably touching. They assembled the last evening in the society room to hear their beloved minister's farewell prayer and exhortation. Walker said to a friend, If you had only seen their countenances, what thankfulness, love, sorrow, and joy sat upon them! They hoped they might bring forth some fruit. They hoped to meet us again at the right hand of Jesus at the great day. It was an hour of blended distress and comfort. The hearts of many were so full that they clasped the hand of the beloved instrument of their conversion and turned away without a word. They began their morning march praising God for having brought them under the sound of the gospel, and as they slowly passed along, they turned around to catch occasional glimpses of the town as it gradually receded from their sight, exclaiming, God bless Truro! They saw their spiritual leader no more upon earth, but were consoled by the hope of a triumphant meeting among the armies of heaven. One important distinctive of Walker's ministry at Truro was the system of private meetings for mutual edification that he succeeded in instituting among the spiritual members of his congregation. He seems to have been deeply impressed with the necessity of following up the work done in the pulpit and with the profitableness of stirring up real Christians to be useful to one another. There can be no doubt that he was right. Edify one another is an apostolic principle far too much overlooked. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Most Christians are far too ready to leave everything to be done by their minister, forgetting that a minister has only one body and one tongue and cannot be everywhere and do everything.
Above all, most Christians forget that the mutual gathering of believers is a valuable means of grace, and that in trying to water others we are likely to be watered ourselves. However, the best and wisest manner of conducting these meetings for mutual edification is a subject of much difficulty, and one on which good men differ widely. Dozens of excellent ministers have attempted to do something in this direction and have completely failed. It was precisely here that Walker seems to have been eminently gifted and obtained extraordinary success. My limited space makes it quite impossible to give a full account of all the plans and arrangements that Walker made for the conduct of these religious societies. Those who wish to know more about them will find them fully described in Edwin Sidney's Life and Ministry of Samuel Walker. One main feature of his system, however, deserves to be especially noticed, and this is his careful classification of the members of his societies. He always formed them into two divisions one composed entirely of men into which no female was admitted, and the other of married men, their wives, and unmarried women, from which all single men were excluded. The wisdom and good sense of this classification will be obvious to every reflecting Christian. It is the very neglect of it, however simple it may seem, that has been the ruin of many similar private movements among religious people. The rules drawn up for the management of meetings are marked throughout by similar sound judgment. The objects to be kept steadily in view, the admission of members, the hours to be kept, the method of proceeding, the things to be habitually avoided by members, are all most carefully defined and give a most favorable idea of Walker's rare Christian good sense. I only have room to quote two rules, but they are a good sample of the tone and spirit running through all the regulations. One rule is, Every member of this society must esteem himself especially obligated to live in an inoffensive and orderly manner, to the glory of God and the edification of his neighbors. He must study to advance in himself and others humility and meekness, faith in Christ, love to God, gospel repentance, and new obedience, in which things Christian edification consists and not in empty talk. In all his conversation and articles of faith, he should stick close to the plain and divine meaning of Holy Scripture, carefully avoiding all elaborate opinions and attempted improvements upon it. The other rule, or rather explanatory definition, is by disorderly behavior, we not only mean the commission of glaring and scandalous sins, but also what are esteemed matters of little importance in the eyes of the world, such as the light use of the words, Lord, God, Jesus, etc., in ordinary conversation, which we cannot but interpret as an evidence of the lack of God's presence in the heart. Doing needless work on the Lord's day, and frequenting alehouses or taverns without necessary business. Also, considering the consequence of vain amusement and entertainment so generally practiced, we do, in love for the souls of others, as well as to avoid the danger of such things ourselves, think ourselves obligated to use particular caution about many of them, however innocent they may be in themselves, such as cards, dancing, clubs for entertainments, theatres, sports at festivals and parish feasts, and as much as may be parish feasts themselves, lest by joining in them we are a hindrance to ourselves and others. This is sound speech that cannot be condemned. Titus 2.8 Principles such as these need no comment.
Whatever objections can be made against private societies, such as those formed by Walker at Truro, as tending to create a church within a church, at least one thing is sure. A system that produced such a high standard of life and practice in the members of the society deserves serious consideration. Walker's most useful career was brought to an end in the year 1761. He died at the early age of 47 of pulmonary consumption, which was accelerated, if not brought on, by his overabundant labors in the cause of Christ at Truro. It's impossible to be surprised that his health broke down at a comparatively early age when we consider the immense amount of ministerial labor that he regularly carried on, single-handed and unassisted, for nearly fourteen years in his large Cornish parish. In a letter dated 1755, he said, My regular duties, beside the Sunday duty, prayers Wednesdays and Fridays, burials, baptisms, and attendance on the sick, is to meet with those in private who ask to speak with me on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, from six to ten in the evening. On Tuesday I attend to the society. On Thursday I give a lecture in church in the evening. Saturday, and as much of Friday as I can give, is spent in preparing the Sunday sermons. To all this must be added what I may well call the care of the church, that is, there are more than a hundred people who, for one reason or another, continually need my direction. You will not wonder if my strength proves unequal to this labor, and I find myself debilitated and under necessity of making my time shorter by lying in bed longer than before. In short, what I am going through seems evidently to be hastening my end, though there is no immediate danger. The plain truth is that instead of wondering that such a man died so soon, we should instead wonder that he worked and lived so long. He died at Blackheath, near London, after a long and suffering illness of more than a year in which he received every care that could be bestowed on his poor earthly tabernacle from the kindness of Lord Dartmouth. He died in the full enjoyment of the peace he had so faithfully preached to others, and his deathbed was without a cloud. He had never married, and, like Berridge, he didn't have a brother, sister, or near relative to stand by him as he went down into the river, but he had that which is far better than earthly relatives, the strong consolation of a lively hope and the presence of that Saviour who sticks closer than a brother, Proverbs 18.24, and who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13.5. The following letter, written on his deathbed to his beloved friend Mr. Conan, only two weeks before he died, gives a most pleasing impression of Walker's happy frame of mind in the prospect of eternity. He said, My dearest, most faithful friend, My disorder, though by no means offering the least prospect of recovery, yet seems to affect me at present more with weakness than with that violent heat that rendered me incapable of thought. I can now, blessed be God, think a little, and with what comfort do I both receive your thoughts and communicate mine to you? O my dear friend, what do we owe to the Lord for one another? More than I could have conceived if God had not sent me to die elsewhere. We will have time to praise the Lord when we meet in the eternal world. I stand and look upon that world with an established heart. I see the way prepared, opened, and assured unto me in Jesus Christ. Forever blessed be the name of God that I can look upon death which introduces that glorious scene without any kind of fear. 
I find that my main duty is still submission, both as to time and circumstances. Why should I not say to you that nothing has come so near my heart as the fear that my will would oppose God's will in any circumstances? Thus, I think, I am enabled to watch and pray in some little measure. Well, my dear friend, I am but stepping a little before you. You will soon also get your release, and then we will triumph forever in the name, love, and power of the Lamb. Adieu. Yours in the Lord Jesus Christ forever. Amen. This touching letter was probably the last that Samuel Walker wrote. One week later, Mr. Burnett, a dear and valued friend both of Walker and Venn, gave the following account of him in a letter to a friend. On Saturday, July 11, I reached Mr. Walker's lodging at Blackheath. There I saw the dear man lying on his bed of sickness, wearing away in the last stage of consumption, burnt up with raging fever, and wasted almost to a skeleton. He was perfectly sensible, and so was able to express himself much to our satisfaction. The first thing that exceedingly struck me was his patient submission under God's hand and his thankful tender concern for all those who are near to him. So little was his mind engaged with things merely pertaining to himself that in the smallest things concerning my own convenience and comfort he behaved as if I had been the sick person. He said he had been uneasy at the beginning of his sickness at the lack of sensible attitude of feeling, but was relieved by that scripture, They that worship God must worship Him in spirit. John 4.24, with the noble powers of the soul. He stated that he now found by experience the worship of God's Spirit on his heart in a degree he had never before experienced. I am now enabled, he said, to see when it was that the Lord Jesus first laid effectual hold of my heart, which I was never able to realize before. I have a perfect satisfaction in the principles I have preached and the methods I have generally taken. I have no doubt respecting my state in Christ or my future glory. Behold, I am going down to the gates of the grave, and holy angels wait for me. Why do you trouble yourselves and weep? Cannot you rejoice with me? I am going to heaven. Christ my Lord died. Oh, if I had strength to express myself, I could tell you enough to make your hearts weep for joy. God is all love to me, and my trials are very small. On Tuesday, July 4, Walker dictated the following words to Mr. Conan. My dearest friend, with great confusion of thought, I have no doubts, great confidence, great submission, and no complaining. As to actual views of the joys that are coming, I have none, but I have a steadfast belief of them in Christ. The same day, when someone sitting by his bedside observed that his soul was prepared for heaven and eternity, he interrupted him by saying that the body of sin was not yet done away, but that he would continue as a sinner to the last gasp, and desired that he would pray for him as such. On Sunday, in the same happy and peaceful frame of mind, the holy minister of Truro fell asleep in Christ and went home. Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. Numbers 23.10 Walker's writings that remain are not many but they deserve far more attention than many writings of the period when he lived. His Lectures on the Church Catechism, his Nine Sermons on the Covenant of Grace, and his Eleven Sermons entitled The Christian are all excellent books 
and should be better known and more read than they are in the present day. His sermons give me a most favorable impression of his powers as a preacher. For simplicity, directness, zeal, and effective appeals to the heart and conscience, I am inclined to assign them a very high rank among the sermons of a hundred years ago. It is my thoughtful impression that if he had been an itinerant like Whitefield and had not confined himself to his pulpit at Truro, he would probably have been considered one of the best preachers of his day. The following extract from the last sermon preached by Walker at Truro is not only interesting in itself, but it is also a very good example of his style of preaching. The subject was the second coming of Christ to judge the living and the dead. He said at the conclusion, Can I think of this day so honorable to him whom my soul loves, without longing and wishing for its appearing? When I consider that his people will partake with him in the glories of that day, and will hear him say those wonderful words never to be taken back, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, Matthew 25, 34, can I do other than say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Certainly I should rejoice to see and be forever with the Lord, to behold his beauty as the express image of his Father's person, Hebrews 1, 3, to contemplate with endless and unquenchable joy the glory that the Father has given him, to make my acknowledgment amid the praises of heaven among the multitude that no one can number as saved, forever saved, by his love, care, power, and grace. When the smallest beam of his glory shines in upon my soul and turns my earth into heaven, making me cry out with Peter, It is good for us to be here, Matthew 17, 4, can I want to delay his coming? When, remaining in this valley of misery, I groan under corruption and am burdened with a corruptible body, can I say that this is better than to be formed in soul and body like unto the Lord? When I find here nothing but vanity and vexation of spirit, Ecclesiastes 1.14, will I be opposed to the Lord's coming, to change my sorrows into joy unspeakable and full of glory? Here, besieged as I am with enemies, would I not long for that blessed day when I will see them again no more forever? Would I not be glad to be taken from a world lying in wickedness and into that new heaven and earth wherein dwells righteousness? I know that my Redeemer lives and that He will stand at the latter day upon the earth. Job 19.25 I have a humble confidence that He will acknowledge me among His children. Will I, like those who know no better joys than this world can offer them, who are ignorant of the Redeemer's righteousness, and who lie under the unconscious guilt of unnumbered and unpardoned sin, will I, like them, cling to this poor life as my all for happiness, and not wait, wish, and long for the day of my Master's glorious appearing? No, I will not abide in that low measure of faith that only brings a hope that I may be well when the Lord comes but doesn't know what it is to love the day of his appearing. My goal will be to be strong in the faith, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, abounding in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit, Romans 15, 13, always fruitful in good works, Colossians 1, 10, and hastening unto the day of the Lord, 2 Peter 3, 12. As for you, my dear hearers, I am grieved at heart for many, very many of you.
to think how you will make your appearance before Christ's judgment seat. You have no works to show that you belong to Christ. I can see none. I see works of various kinds that prove you do not belong to Him. If a life of pleasure, idleness, indulgence, drunkenness, pride, and covetousness would recommend you to the favor of the judge, few would be better received than many of you. In the name of God, my friends, when you know right now in your own consciences that if you would be called to judgment as you have been and as you are, you would be certainly cast into hell, why will you live in such a way? Well, we will soon all be before the judgment seat of Christ. There the controversy between me, persuading you by the terrors of the Lord to repent, 2 Corinthians 5.11, and you, determined to abide in your sins, will be decided. There it will appear whether your blood will be upon your own heads for your stubborn unrepentance, or upon mine for not giving you warning. Christ will certainly either acquit or condemn me on this account, and if I should be acquitted, what will become of you? I tremble to think how many words of mine will be brought up against you on that day. What will you say? What will you answer? How will you defend yourselves? O sirs, if you will not be prevailed upon, you will, with eternal self-reproach, curse the day that you knew me or heard one word from my mouth. Why, why will you die with so intense a destruction? May the Lord incline you to think. May He cause this word to sink deep into your hearts. May He show you all your dangers, and with an outstretched arm bring you out of the hands of the devil and bring you into the kingdom of His dear Son. The letters that Mr. Sidney has collected in his biography of Walker are all interesting, especially those addressed to the two Wesleys and to Thomas Adam of Winteringham, author of Private Thoughts Upon Religion. Indeed, the whole book is valuable. I only regret that the author thought it necessary to elaborate so carefully on his favorite idea that Mr. Walker was a sound churchman and not a dissenter. It may be perfectly true, but it's too often pushed in front of us. Samuel Walker lived in a day when the very existence of Christianity in England was at stake, and when the main business of true-hearted Christians was to preserve the very foundations of revealed religion from being swept away. To my eyes, Walker's thorough Christianity is a far more noticeable object than his churchmanship. After all that has been said, I leave the subject of this chapter with a very deep conviction that we know comparatively very little about Walker. The half of his work, I suspect, has never yet been recorded. He lived near Land's End. He seldom left his own parish. His life was never fully written until fifty or sixty years after he was dead. It's not a wonder, then, if we only know a little about the man. However, I venture to conclude that in the last day, when the secrets of all ministries will be made known, few will be found to have done better work for Christ in their day and generation than Samuel Walker of Truro.